Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic. And, of course, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of it's not aliens, it's worse, it's us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a bunch of information there on how you can contribute. And now, without further ado, my guest for today is Max Hawthorne, and I believe he is an expert on the Kraken. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Can I say, release the Kraken? <laughs> well, you have to use the uh, Liam Neeson voice. When you do. <laughs> release I... the Kraken! <laughs> you know, I did an interview about that actually a while back. Uh, I was approached by the Washington Post, and they wanted to talk to me about this old Kraken thing. It's, <laughs> like, I think it was back in December or something like that. <laughs> I can't believe that became a political thing. <laughs> yeah, that's what they wanted to talk about. They wanted to know if I had heard of this thing being go- this going on and what I thought of it and all this stuff. And I was like, uh, I don't do politics. You know, that's like so I just sidestepped and I gave them cracking information. They actually used some of it in the uh, in their piece. So. Awesome. So, what is the cracking giant squid? Uh, well, it appears. I mean, based on the reports, eyewitness statements, anecdotal stuff. Um, if did you um, read that section in Monsters and Marine Mysteries? Not yet. Okay. Well, there's a whole section there about crack and sightings, but there are also some entries about giant octopi as well. Um, so, you know, if if reports are to be believed, and the anecdotal reports are fairly compelling and more modern things, there it appears that there are squid out there that reach preternatural proportions. Um, I got to speak with a lot of different people and do a lot of investigations, interviews, and stuff. When I was writing Monsters and Marine Mysteries, um, the first thing I did was I looked into the anecdotal aspect of it. You know, there were reports going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'm not talking like the Viking stuff, I'm sightings by whalers and, and sailing ships, etc. It seems a lot more prevalent these incidents when there are vessels out there that are quiet, that aren't moving around, that aren't making a lot of noise, sailing ships, ships that anchor, drifting, things of that nature, which makes sense if you think about it, since an animal like that, when it's smaller, the sperm whale would be its natural predator. So anything large and noisy coming at it, especially something big enough to be a threat to it. And even if some of these, if these reports are right and there are squid out there 175 feet long, they still look tiny compared to commercial ships, military ships, etc. So it would make sense that you wouldn't encounter something like that. It would flee, it would head the other way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, <clears throat> I looked at a lot of these reports of sea serpents and such, and you 
read these things and you see that they talk about this whale comes to the surface and it's got, you know, it's battling a sea serpent, which is entwined around it and stuff like that. And it becomes obvious after a while that it's not a serpent. These are the tentacles of some sort of immense squid that have fastened onto the whale and it is trying to subdue the whale and drag it under. And the, the size and scope of these, these arms and the rest of the animal <clears throat> does not suggest a, uh, a squid that a sperm whale would prey upon. The uh, a sperm whale is limited by something it can swallow. So usually the tentacle, I mean, the hooks from the tentacles, the beaks that are found in sperm whale bellies, for example, would be from specimens that the whale is able to dispatch and choke down, right. which seems to be limited to a squid with a mantle, perhaps two meters in length, two and a half meters, something like that. And once you get beyond that point, you know, you get an animal that has a, a mantle length of, gosh, six, eight meters or more, it's big enough to prey on the whale. So the tide turns, let's say. And so it became obvious that a lot of these so-called serpents were uh, predatory attacks by cephalopods on whales. Um, there was some that were interesting I discussed where it actually mentions how the, the serpent raised parts of its body, like its tail and its head out of the water and smashed them down on the whale repeatedly. And this sounds like a technique that an immense squid is using to stun the whale and make it more, how can I say this, render it in a condition where it can be dragged under more easily and drowned mm -hmm. and preyed upon, that type of thing. But uh, we have actual evidence. I believe it's the USS Stein incident. I think it was 1978. I could be wrong. I don't have the book in front of me, and I don't remember everything, unlike my wife, who never forgets <laughs> anything. But anyway, you know. <clears throat> it's 78. You, yes. But um, so you had a destroyer named the Stein that leaves out of San Diego, and shortly after it's at sea, uh, the ship, and the reports vary, but uh, some of the reports said that the ship shuddered or something, and then their radar, I mean, their sonar went non-operational, and they couldn't bring it back online, so the ship was effectively blind out there. Well, this is very dangerous, I mean, for any vessel, because you can't tell you know, how the water depth around you, let alone a military vessel that is has to worry about submarines and other threats that it's patrolling for. So the Stein had to return to dock immediately. When they got there, they discovered that the sonar dome had been attacked by something. And for people that don't know, a sonar dome is like a sort of, uh, how can I say this, like a large sort of oval shaped or spherical object that protrudes under the waterline at the bow of the ship. And in the case of the USS Stein, it was about 25 feet across. And this sonar dome is where the active and passive sonar emissions from the submarine emerge. They, they actually emit from that, and that's how the ship is able to see, navigate, you know, pick up threats, etc. So the sonar dome, what was interesting was it was covered with a what they call a no-foul rubber coating, which was to protect it from stuff and keep like stuff from adhering to it, like let's say uh, loose flotsam, uh, plant life, things of that nature, you know, seaweed, kelp, whatever, which would obviously interfere. Um, this rubber coating had been shredded over a large percentage of its surface, which is impressive for a 25 foot wide dome. I mean, picture a living room 25 feet wide, that's the, the size of the object. And 
like I forget, I think they said like 80% of it was covered with these slashes and rake marks and stuff. And a lot of them had these like broken off claws embedded in the material and each slash. See? So when they examined these, they determined that it was from a species of squid and the claws were five times larger than the sucker claws from any known specimen. So you're talking about it, an immense animal, big enough to attack a destroyer. And so as I examined the evidence further, I looked into the range uh, with the, uh, for the sonar, for the sonar dome. And it turned out that the active sonar range that they utilize was in the same Hertz range as a sperm whale uses when it's hunting, which means, which in a scientific term strongly suggests that you had this gigantic squid out there. It, without the long tentacles, possibly 150 or 175 feet long, and the destroyer starts to pass over it. And as it does, it's emitting the sonar and the squid picks it up and decides it's about to be attacked by its natural predator. And the stein was 400 something feet long, so the squid obviously would feel that it was being threatened. I mean, it's not going to say, oh, this is a, you know, a metallic object, etc. It's not a problem. So the squid lashes out and it attacks the sonar dome, which by coincidence, by shape, is very similar to the head and the end of the head cranium of a sperm whale. You know, they have that bulbous mm -hmm. head there with the spermaceti organ, etc. And except that a sperm whale with a head 25 feet across would be bigger than a blue whale, probably, or darn close to it. Um, so it attacks the sonar dome, it fastens onto it, it's shredding it, slashing away at it, and then it realizes, okay, this is not, you know, organic, whatever, it breaks off its assault and it, you know, flees into the depths, leaving the warship, of course, damaged and having to return the dock. So that gives us basically physical evidence that there are gigantic squid out there. And then there's another more recent incident, I think it was 2002, don't hold me to it, um, where there was a, a trimaran yacht. It's like a sailing vessel, but it, you know, it has three hulls. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was one of the races in Europe, and it's about a 100-foot vessel. Once again, I don't have all the details in front of me, so I'm just spitballing. I think its vessel's name was the Geronimo, though, off the top of my head. And it was attacked by a very, very large squid, which slammed into it, into its rear portions, fastened onto it, and was actually slowing it down almost to a complete stop. And the captain said he looked out a porthole and he saw this thing and he said that its tentacles were as thick as his thighs. Now, in, in the book, in Monsters Marine Mysteries, I provide all the info to go with this. And you see like a carcass of a giant squid that's, I think it's about six meters long or something like that. And the tentacles are two inches thick. So how big is a squid that has tentacles as thick as a man's leg? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it's like latched on. Unfortunately, after a while, we decided that it's, it wasn't prey and it let go. I believe that this was a very large squid that thought that it was looking at probably a trio of finback whales or something like that. You know, those long, slim right. baleen whales, which was probably an ideal prey item for it. Can't, can't defend itself very well, et cetera. And it, it tackled what it thought was the tail end of one of them. And it ended up grabbing the rudder, et cetera, of one of the hulls of the trimaran, at which point there was a struggle and it hung on for a while. And then it realized, okay, this is not dinner. And then it let go and they went on their way. But, you know, that these things happen. And once again, it's a sailing vessel though. It's not a something with a big, you know, with props in the water that are screaming along at thousands of RPMs and 
you know, making a tremendous racket, et cetera. Wow. So, so, so they seem to be out there. So why aren't like um, divers fighting? Like, I watched a show recently on, a, I think it was Discovery Channel, where they were looking for giant squid. And, uh, and I think like the biggest one they found was something like 25 feet or something like that. But, but nothing near like, you know. What we're talking about. Yeah. Well, well I think you're, it's, it's a numbers game first off. I mean, if you think about a species that we're more familiar with, like the great white shark, mm-hmm. um, there are, I mean, estimates vary, but there are probably at least 10,000 great whites in the world, possibly 20,000. Honestly, I mean, excluding juveniles, et cetera. I mean, there are a lot of them. In one section of the Atlantic alone, there's like 3,500 individuals. So let's say we have 10,000 great white sharks out there. How many great white sharks do we know of that are 20 feet or more in length? One, two, yeah. you know, deep blue, possibly, and maybe mm-hmm. one other one. Yet in my book, I proved that great whites can exceed 25 feet in length because we got measured fresh feeding bites on whale carcasses some of which one of which is 39 inches tall which is gigantic that's bigger than bruce the shark from jaws okay i mean picture a gape height bite height 39 inches three feet plus three inches and 27 inches across a grown man could go into that mount so um but they're out there but nobody ever sees them now a squid is even worse because they don't really prowl on the surface typically they usually live thousands of feet down they usually only come up at night for the most part to hunt, et cetera. So it's a rarity that you're going to see a squid in the first place. It took us how many years before they finally got one on video? You know, nobody had ever seen a live squid until like what, a decade ago or something like that. <laughs> so, so think about it. If you have 10,000 white sharks and there's one or two that are 20 feet long, like mathematically speaking, if you know that squid reach like the largest measured squid um, with head, mantle, and short arms, okay, is 50 feet long, I believe, without the long arms. With the long arms, it would be considerably bigger. Okay, I think that's the uh, Thimble uh, Bay squid, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, these guys from the Stein were claiming that their thing was five times bigger. Now, I don't think there's a squid out there that big, okay, but that'd be 250 feet long. Maybe they didn't take that specimen into account. Who knows? But the point is, is that if you know that squid gets to be 50 feet with the tentacles, long arms or thereabouts, then the odds are that they, ones that get, you know, just like shark, you're going to have ones that could be twice that size or darn close to it. So it's just a rarity that they get to that size. It's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. Like people, you know, we know people can sometimes grow eight feet, but most of us are six feet or less. So, Interesting. So... Yeah, and also you know you have to keep in mind a squid doesn't float when it dies. Their body has the same; they're the same density as water. That's why they don't show up on sonar. The only part that shows up on sonar is the beak, typically, the hard part. See, so so how intel- how intelligent are squid? I know, well, they're not definitely not as intelligent as octopuses. Uh, that's for sure. I think they. I mean, obviously, the one that attacked this guy's trimaran and held on to it for quite some time before finally let go was not the sharpest tool in the shed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there was an incident in uh, Monsters and Marine Mysteries where I interviewed uh, this one member of a group of friends down in Sanibel Island. They were, the incident took place off Sanibel Island, I should say, and they were the, I think this was 2013 or something, and they had a down there for the guy's birthday, him and a couple of his friends, and they had a charter boat that they were on 
you know, private charter. I think he says it was a 55 foot boat. And they were like maybe a mile or two offshore, three miles at most. It was a couple miles maybe at most. But anyway, and they're drifting along and they're fishing. And they're using what he described as disgusting bait that really stank to high heaven. You know, who knows what it was, cut bait, chopped up fish, whatever, and stuff like that. And they're all fishing. And boats creaking along with the tide. And all of a sudden, a, a immense tentacle comes up, surfaces near them, and starts slithering toward them. They see 30 feet of this tentacle, which at the widest part that they saw, he said was three feet in diameter, thickness. Okay, now picture a tentacle three, huge. Yes, three feet thick, okay? And it starts to, it's, it's 20 feet from them. They're looking right at it. And it, 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 like a snake on the surface, and it starts touching the side of their boat. Okay. He said they could see the rest of the tentacle going underwater and when this, and they could see other tentacles, like the silhouette of them and an, an immense body that it was all attached to. And they said it was definitely an octopus. And he said that, uh, it was felt the boat. They weren't scared. They thought, you know, it was just curious as he put it. And after a few seconds of touching the boat and exploring it, et cetera, the tentacle withdrew, went under and they saw the whole thing like whoosh, like swim away. And, you know, he was talking to me about it, and he thought it was a regular thing. Like, octopuses regularly get that big. And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> you know? No. And he goes, really? Because this thing was like 80 or 90 feet long, I guess. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, no. And then I was like, you're actually quite lucky because you see an octopus that size, which is probably lurking around Sanibel. I mean, if you know, the story is legit. I, I picked his brain to no end and all that. He was quite, you know, sincere. But um, uh, like an octopus that size is capable of tackling a, a cetacean, you know, some whales. And it probably saw this boat above it and smelled this fish and this flesh and blood and all that. And it thought the boat was probably a sleeping whale. You know, and it was considering taking a stab at it, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that um, – Octopuses have chemoreceptors in their suction cups, their suckers. So that allows them to taste with their arms, with their suckers. And so what it was doing was it was touching the boat and getting a tactile impression of the boat and tasting it. And it realized it was fiberglass or metal, whatever the boat like was made it. of. Yeah. And it just, you know, disengaged or did not engage and it just took off. And I told him, I said, you guys were quite lucky because let's say that this animal was not the sharpest tool in the shed and it slammed into the boat and wrapped it up and stuff and it started tearing at it and all. And then it's like, oh, this is not edible, but God forbid it wraps its arm around a person. It might say, oh, well, wait, here's an hors d'oeuvre, you know, here's another one. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, it's like, it's like the scene from my first Cronus Rising Kraken novel where you've got this big schooner being attacked by an immense octopus that starts cherry picking people off there and, and to their deaths and devouring them. You know, that, that it comes to the territory. It could have been a nightmarish scenario. Do you think but, they uh, could get a taste for human? Well, I think any animal can. I mean, I know there's been incidents where they were worried about a white shark, the same shark. I think it was in Australia that made multiple attacks on people and they were concerned that it was you know, beginning to target human beings. That type of thing. I, I would think honestly that it was there for manatees um, because they're so big and so slow mm -hmm. and so and defenseless. I mean, it's like a big, it's like a, a big sausage. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it really is. <laughs> I know. You know? We, we actually have them down here where I live. 
Yes. I mean, you look at these things and they're all harmless. They're not walruses. They don't have tusks that they could fight back with or anything like that, you know? So, um, but, and it was interesting because he, um, it wasn't the first time that this creature was apparently seen because he told me when they got back to shore, they went to the library to look at books of different cephalopod tentacles because they wanted to see what it was. And they confirmed based on what they saw, color, suckers all this other was definitely an octopus um but they also called the harbor master he said either harbor master or coast guard he wasn't sure but they uh and they reported it and the guy was like oh yeah he goes we know it's been here for a few days now and i'm like wow like could you tell people hey there's a carnivorous cephalopod that's twice the length of a bus swimming around out here you know like maybe you want to not surf not go in the water you know i mean that seemed a little strange but i mean he was like oh no we definitely told them and that's what they said and that sighting he talked about the guy was referring to might have been the one with the sanibel island sea serpent which was uh, in the same area where these people videotape something grab a manatee which is why i say i think the thing would be that it's natural prey it's there for the manatees which you know are ideal i mean 1200 pounds on the hoof Mm -hmm. you know a lot of blubber etc but octopuses are very intelligent i mean mm -hmm. they have uh you know when you you had asked about that they they like they, if you look at them first of all, just the fact that they can change colors and yeah. textures with the papillae and the chromatophores in their bodies requires a tremendous brain to do all that they can they could go plaid and i don't want to quote Spaceballs. he's going to plaid but they can basically do any color pattern or texture almost they want they can look like seaweed they can look like a rock they can look like algae they can look like sand i mean they're amazing and their brains are proportionally larger than that of most of not most but of some mammals and the funny part is is that two-thirds of their brain neurons though aren't in their brains it's in the arms i mean they actually have the ability to assign a task to several of their arms and then focus on something else Crazy. It'd be like you or I, like, you know, writing a blog post, you know, with our, our hands mm -hmm. and then turning and watching television and at the same time. Right. And, and they also use tools, right? Yeah, they have. They There are some, like the coconut octopus, that lives in a predator-rich environment without a lot of structure, like reefs to hide in. And they will take a coconut, which is, I don't know how, if they, they're splitting them in half or not. You know, but uh, and they hold the two halves of the coconut with them and they roll around with it. And if they feel threatened, they slap it together and they get inside of it. And there are uh, well, all different reports of them. Yeah, it's amazing the things they do. They have there's there's a funny one. I forget what his name is. It might be Oscar, a captive octopus in this aquarium. And he would do all sorts of things that would people were astounded by. He would redecorate his tank, move things around different places like he was changing, you know, his furniture. Okay, not destroying it, rearranging. He would juggle live hermit crabs, juggle, like tossing them up in the air <laughs> there and stuff. Um, and he learned how to, like at night, there was a light shining on his tank from outside that bothered him. And he realized that if he shot a jet of water at it, you know, himself, like spit water, like shot it right at it, he could short it out. And he would do that repeatedly so he didn't have the light bothering him at night so he could sleep better, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, they dream too. So. Do, do you think that octopuses could be alien to Earth? Well, there was some stuff in the news a while back where they're looking at the DNA and they said it seems so far removed from everything else here that some scientists, some scientists believe that uh, it's possible they could have come here through like pieces of an asteroid or something like that that might have 
contain some genetic material or something or eggs or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's, that's a theory. I think it's hard to survive an impact uh, and the heat generated by an asteroid coming in, of course, but who knows, maybe if there was a whole egg sack attached on a chunk of space debris or something like that, or inside part of it, and maybe only the outside part got scorched, I guess anything's possible. I know they have been around, I think, since the Triassic, they have fossils showing octopuses going all the way back there. That's a while. Interesting. I, I saw an octopus once while I was snorkeling. Kind of, mm. It was cool. Yeah, they can be very friendly. They can be curious. They can approach people. I mean, people have rescued them on the beach, like one that was washed ashore and it was dying from being stranded and drying out. And they helped it back into the water and stayed with it. And it, it resuscitated it rehydrated, et cetera, and it was able to swim away. And then when they came back the next day, it came into the shallows to thank them. Like it, it wanted to say hello. <laughs> it, it remembered them saving its life. I will never eat octopus in a, in a restaurant. No. Ever. No. I've caught them fishing mm -hmm. accidentally. Like in Hawaii, I was in Maui and we had a, a good sized common octopus grab my bait and got hooked. And um, octopus vulgaris to be exact. Although they're not vulgar, but anyway, <laughs> he was remarkably civilized and I was trying to um, get the hook out of him and it was quite frustrating because he was scared and he kept wrapping up my arms and immobilizing me. He wasn't trying to bite me, see, but he was trying to stop me and I, I was like struggling because every time I would peel off one arm and it's like suction cups, except it does hurt a little, but mm. it didn't damage it. They don't have teeth like the squid suckers do. But uh, I'd peel up one arm and three would take its place. I'm like, what are you, Hydra? <laughs> Cut off one head, two more will take its place. You know, you were from Marvel. But, uh, and it was like this thing. And I finally had to like cut the end of the hook with a little bolt cutter there, you know, because it was hurting him, the barb, trying to remove the hook. And then I was able to slide it out, back it out, and then we were able to release him. But uh, I felt very bad, and it's an intelligent animal. I mean, you know, there was a anyway. So that's I pretty wild. Them. How about dolphins? Dolphins, um, they they seem to, you know, there's always reports of like dolphins helping humans. Mm -hmm. is, is there some type of relationship between dolphins and humans? Um, I think that a lot of times, like there have been a lot of documented incidents where. Uh, dolphins especially the bottlenose have protected people from sharks for example mm -hmm. and the thing about a uh, a dolphin and this includes the killer whale orsons orca by the way is the largest dolphin just so we're clear on that but uh they have sonar and their sonar is quite powerful and they can target a person and look through you like an mri or an x-ray they can see everything. So they could tell if a woman's pregnant, for example. Uh, they can tell that you're a mammal. That you could, that They have the same pretty much body temperature as us. It's very close. So a lot of people theorize that it recognizes the fact that it's another mammal in distress. And, you know, they look at us and they're like, oh, my God, this poor thing is going to drown. It can't swim. It can't keep itself afloat. And then they see a shark, which is their natural enemy. You could see the desire all of a sudden to protect a person. I mean, there are films of hippopotamuses that attack a crocodile that's latched onto a wildebeest and save the wildebeest. Why are they doing that? See? And that's because the crocodile is their natural enemy 
and they do not like crocodiles at all. They're raised to know they're, you know, that's their, their adversary and that they can kill a crocodile, but, you know, unless they're a baby, but, uh, you know, they, they, I, I think it's the same thing. It sees a mammal being attacked by this reptile and it's able to emotionally, uh, empathically relate on some level. And it just decides to intervene. Dolphins are much, much more intelligent, obviously, than the, the water horse or water pig, whatever that, you know, translates to hippopotamus. Mm-hmm. But, um, so it would not surprise me at all that that happened. Now there have been incidents where they dolphins have done things, you know, with people that are not appropriate, like you know, getting a little frisky. It's like you know sex, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't want to, you know. Well, it's eat. weird though. It's kind of fascinating. Like, I wonder why they do that. Like, well, I like think they, it's, they, they um, see a person as an actual mate. I, I don't think it. I think it's only happened with women, as far as I know, and it's possible that the i mean human beings give off pheromones mm-hmm. um we're not super sensitive to them because our senses are fairly dull compared to animals but i, I would imagine if a female homo sapien in the water is ovulating the dolphin could sense it and it might excite them because it's still a mammal still the same body temperature once again etc you know we have smooth skin like they do you know so who knows? I mean, hey, there are people out there that, you know, do strange things if you mm-hmm. understand their personal lives. So, you know, I mean, who am I to judge a dolphin? Just don't touch me. Hmm. I kissed one once, by the way. Yeah, I, I've swam with dolphins and did the kiss thing and had them lift me up on, in the air yeah. and, and stuff like that. What do you think about that? Do you think it's cruel to keep the dolphins in captivity and, tre- and train them to do tricks with humans? I'm not a big fan of it. The one place that I was okay with it at was, uh, oh my God, was it in Grand Cayman, I think, like two years ago before the pandemic and all. And they have the, this dolphin lagoon there. And the dolphins were born and raised in captivity, but they have access to the open sea. There is a you know protective fence there, and they mm-hmm. can jump out whenever they want. And they do. And they go exploring, et cetera. But they... Um, you know, they only have each other and they're the people that raise them. So in their minds, they're more like humans. So they have the, I mean, I like it that the fact that they can go out and explore, et cetera, but at the same time, they have the safety of coming back to their cove where they're not vulnerable to sharks or humans, et cetera. So I think, I mean, it's okay. I like the fact that they could come and go as they please, but they think of themselves as people and they think of the people that have raised them and that trained them, et cetera, as family. So they just want to stay. I guess it's like when you took a dire wolf and you domesticated it and it became a dog. You know, a dog doesn't survive well in the wild typically, but prefers to be, you know, in a house with people. So I guess it's along those same lines, except the dolphin's smarter and more emotional. Oh. Yeah, the place I did that, too, was in the Dominican Republic. And it was sort of like that, too. It was sort of in the open water. It wasn't in a tank. Mm-hmm. So it didn't feel as like they were so confined. Yeah, I mean, they're quite impressive. I mean, they slip through the water like butter. I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> you know, and, a, and a power. I mean, this thing was like dragging my fat, you know what, through the water. I was like impressed, you know. Uh, like, forget it. So... Next topic, the Meg. Do you think they're out there? Mm. Well, 
I've actually done a lot of research on the Megalodon shark, whose uh, genus has changed multiple times over the last few decades. It was Carcharodon megalodon, then it was Carcharocles megalodon, now it's a Totus megalodon. I'm like, make up your mind, you know? <laughs> so just calling it megalodon and stuff is, you know, the easiest way to go and all that. Um, I made it, uh, you know, a, a, a hobby out of it because I have this extensive fossil collection. I mean, I have like the entire shark line post Cretaceous from, I have like gorgeous teeth, Otodus obliquus, uh, Chubutensis, Auriculatus, all of these, the whole lineage leading up to the, this chrono species, which culminates in Megalodon. Do, do you have to... a hat that's decorated with shark teeth? No. Okay. No. And usually when I go shark fishing, I only do catch and release also. Just mm -hmm. so clear on that. I've released two world record sharks that I didn't take the world records for because I didn't want to kill the fish. Right. So, you know, which I'm sure the current record holders are happy because they get to keep them, <laughs> whatever. But anyway, um, so the thing is that there were actually two mega two sharks sharing the oceans for millions of years at the same time. And that was Otodus chubutensis, which was a very large macro predatory shark, which topped out at around 40 feet in length. And then there was Otodus megalodon, which is actually believed to have branched off from Chubutensis. So the species split and they occupy the same oceans for millions of years. And my personal theory on this is that this was a matter of diet and calories and the effects that this had on the shark species itself. Because if you look at their teeth, the teeth have changed. The morphological adaptations of the teeth are different. Chubutensis's teeth are very similar still to an immense great whites. They tend to have thinner crowns. They're more blade-like, more pointy than those of Megalodon, which suggests that it continues to hunt its entire life. And the reason I'll get to the point about whether they're out there or not, when uh, you know, covering all the, the basis this this. But then I looked at the megalodon teeth, and in, you have teeth, especially the uppers, the maxillary teeth in the center, like there's four to six teeth in the you know the primary teeth that it, the shark feeds with, and these teeth are they're not blades anymore. They're like bone chisels. They have these cylindrical cores instead of these flat triangular daggers that Chubutensis has. And these cylindrical cores are almost blunt at the tip. And then as they're narrower and as they come down toward the root, the cusp flares out like an arc, as if you were like sliding down a slide or something like that, you know? And those are, and the, it's very thin and blade-like and it has these hacksaw-like serrations coating it. So when you look at these teeth, you're thinking, okay, why? And the, the, the only shark in the world that I've ever seen that has teeth like this. So why are these teeth like this? And why are they kind of blunt with these thick cylinder-like cores and then these curved flaring out cusps that are like hacksaws? And the only thing that made sense was that they were like a, a wedge, like a bone wedge. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, you have a, like a log splitter and it has the, like that point and then the serrations flare out on the sides and yeah. you hammer this into you know a log and you split it apart to make firewood okay so the more i examined it the more i started to say well this seems like an adaptation for something specific and as i studied it in detail and i started collecting more and more fossils i realized that the 
teeth in a megalodon were designed to split ribs apart like a nutcracker see mm -hmm. and so what happens is is that the shark would come up to a whale carcass and it would go up to the rib cage and it would wrap its jaws like onto the onto the whale's flank onto the rib cage there now i don't a lot of people don't know this but sharks feed in what we call like a, a fork and knife pattern okay so the low the teeth in the lower jaw and it applies to almost every shark the bull shark the great white the mako etc the teeth in the lower jaw are more slender pointy and dagger-like like spikes okay than in the upper jaws see and this even happens in the megalodon too and what you see happen is, is the lower jaw would embed into the body of the prey item. Mm -hmm. And that's to pin it, to hold it in place. Okay. And then the upper jaw extends up and out, almost hyperextends, bears those big teeth, and then they come down. So in the case of Megalodon, though, you don't want to come up to a rib cage, which is hard bone, and just bite. Because no matter how your teeth are, you're going to lose teeth because you're you know, facing bone on bone. And it's not that the megalodon teeth themselves get broken, although there are many examples, and usually always in the really big adults, okay, where the teeth are crushed down. You have compression damage on the tips of the crowns. That's from hitting ribs and biting, okay? But uh, what happens is, is those teeth are embedded in a jaw made of cartilage, and cartilage is not bone. They're not deeply embedded. Like if you look at Leviathan, uh, the Prehistoraptorial sperm whale, which has this immense 14-inch teeth, they have huge roots. They're solidly in bone. If you look at the prehistoric marine reptiles like pliosaurs, the same thing. The, you know, the 40% of the tooth is exposed, and 60% is root. These things are like anchor. They're not going anywhere. Tyrannosaurus rex, same thing. Okay, but in the case of shark, those roots are shallowly embedded, and they easily can be ripped out. See. Like mm -hmm. you could grab it like with a pliers. If you had a dead gray white, you could take a pliers and you could yank a tooth out fairly easily. If you try that with something else, like a big animal, I mean, if you've ever had a tooth extracted, you know, the dentist, your whole head's moving, they're pulling, uh, 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 and we're just people. So imagine a big predator with deeply roots. You're not, you, you know, you could drag the animal around by its, its tooth yeah. practically. Okay. So what happens here is, is you can't, you don't just bite. The teeth are designed like pegs to fit into notches. So it would feel around on the whale's flank, it start to bite, and it feels that it wants those crown tips to slip between the rib. And then the next two slip between the next rib, and the next one, and the next one. And once it's got that bite, I call it a lock on, like this, then it brings the power of the jaws to bear. And what happens is, and it's fantastic the way this works, nature is obviously a genius, is as the, the thinner crowns push down between each tooth, those cusps I told you about that flare out like blades, you know, like a slide, they start to now cut into the rib to the left of the tooth and to the right of the tooth, like a hacksaw. Mm -hmm. But the same thing is going on in multiple ribs at the same time. So it's pressing down and these ribs are being sandwiched with blades on both sides that are pushing, pushing, pushing. And instead of the shark having to crush the ribs to get through them, it just reaches a shatter point where they're being cut on both sides like like pinchers, and then boom, they just shard apart, splinter, boom. And the shark was easily able to bite through the whole rib cage and to get what's inside, which is the heart and the lungs of this dead whale. So the interesting thing about this is that now you have a shark with blunter teeth, 
but you also have a shark that, and a lot of people don't like this fact, its morphological adaptations suggest that it was a scavenger. It, designed, it was designed to eat whale carcasses at this point. That's what okay. it evolved into. Okay. So what's interesting about this is, is that, now this doesn't mean that the younger megalodons weren't predators. You know, the 10, 20, even 30 footers were probably still active predators. But as the shark gets bigger and bigger, you see that these teeth, you have these fine serrations and these massive chisel shaped teeth that are literally these log splitters that are designed for that. And it has to be because it's a scavenger because a live whale is not going to lie on its side, strike a pose and go, okay, baby, right here. Gonna just feel it in there. Come on. Yeah, right. No, no, a little to the left, a little to the left, you know, that type of thing. And so, and I mean, I've got the proof now. I have all these fossil ribs and they show multiple attempts where the shark is feeling around, feeling around until it gets the, 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 the lock on. And then the rib, boom, exploded. I've got it all. Uh, so, okay. so if the megalodon was a, is a scavenger. Well, it means that the biggest, this is why I believe these two species split off. Mm-hmm. There were so many whales around back then that you end up with a shark that, you know, the, these fish have indeterminate growth, like reptiles. They'll grow based on food supply and available space, and as long as they're alive. Now, the growth slows, et cetera. So if you have an area where you have a lot of whales and a lot of whale carcasses resulting from this, et cetera, and or being killed by other sharks, et cetera, you know, the more that the animal can eat, the bigger it's going to get, and the bigger it's going to pass on its genes, et cetera. But what happens is, as any shark, we know this from gray whites and everything else, the bigger they get, the slower they get. And that's the truth. It's partially about a matter of mass, but it's also a matter of a, sh- of a, a skeleton made of cartilage. If you ever see a whale shark swim, they're no speed demons. They're mm-hmm. big, but they can only go so fast. And that's because cartilage is like tire rubber. Okay, You can only contract a muscle with so much speed and power against tire rubber versus bone before that tire rubber is going to like come apart. So they have a physical limitation. It doesn't apply to small sharks because it works to their advantage. They're speed demons. They can change direction. I fished Makos and the things they do, it's insane. They're like a Corvette. Okay. But, uh, you know, a friend of mine showed a demonstration. He showed a 30-foot basking shark carcass, and he took out a knife, pocket knife from his pocket, and he sliced through a vertebra like it was cheese like hard cheese, but right through. He mm-hmm. said, now, if this was a whale carcass, he goes, I would never be able to even make a dent on this thing. And that's what happens with these sharks. So when you have a shark that starts getting to the point where it's now 40 and 50 feet long, its swimming speed is so reduced, it needs carrion more and more to eat. And so with Chubutensis, what was happening is the biggest ones were gorging in these areas and feeding and growing larger and larger and larger, but it got to the point where they were getting slower also. And what would happen is, is when you're slow, when you get to a whale carcass, for example, and that's been killed by a 30-foot megalodon or a 25-foot tributensis, let's say, they killed it, they fed on it, et cetera. Other scavengers have come and torn it up and they've eaten and all this stuff. Okay. And what's left is most of the good stuff is gone. You know, the intestines are gone, all that lower stuff, the lower abdominal region. A lot of the musculature is gone. The blubber is all gone, which is like the, the biggest calories that it could get. You know, all that's left really are these organs inside the, that rib cage. And the rib cage, though, is like a jail cell. See, the smaller sharks can't get to the heart and lungs because they can't bite through it. Hence, you need a big mama, like a 40, 50 foot megalodon or a really big chubby tensis to try and do that. 
So it makes sense that logically the sharks that would successfully feed on those whale carcasses that with the rib cage and get to that heart and lungs were ones that were best adapted to bite through it. So over time, you see these changes in the tooth crowns. And I have like tooth crowns out the wazoo to, to back this up. You see them where they're like, you know, like a wedge and then they become more wedgy and more wedgy until you have that tapered tip and then the flare out that became the perfect nutcracker, we'll call it, for this. And over time, that's what happened. They became specialists, but it was the adults. The smaller ones are still out there hunting. You know, you're a 20 foot megalodon going after a 20 foot cetotherium, which is one of their primary forage species. It's like a baleen whale, extinct baleen whale. Then they're going to, it's just like a great white attacking an elephant seal. Same thing. See? So that's what happened. So the point of all this in terms of megalodon being out there or not is I was, and I'm sorry, I, I had to go on this whole huge tangent to, to cover this and everything, is that like the best evidence that I've seen so far that indicates that we have a huge macro, macro predatory shark out there are two things. One, I was not able to put in Monsters and Marine Mysteries because I couldn't remember who sent it to me and I, you know, so I couldn't get a copyright release. But I have like one photo that's quite compelling. But another one that I was able to use was taken by marine biologist Dr. Simon J. Pierce, who is the god of sharks and whale sharks. I mean, this man is insanely talented. He does sonograms of pregnant whale sharks while swimming with them, you know, like, like examining oh, yeah, and stuff yeah. like, I mean, like yeah. he's, he's, he's in the Galapagos, he's like God. Okay. And so <laughs> back in, I think it was 2017 over the top of my head, they filmed and photographed a 40 foot whale shark off the Galapagos. And it's, that's a big whale shark. Yeah. I mean, that's bus size. Okay. But they get bigger. They can top 60 feet sometimes, although we kill them usually, unfortunately then but um not you and i but people um and this whale shark had a bite on its left flank that munched out a section of the caudal keel and a little bit under it uh that was four feet across so i'm looking at this bite i'm like wow and it's obviously a shark bite and a lot of people say well that happened a long time ago and it just grew with the shark and stuff like that and i don't buy it to be perfectly frank and when people get monsters and marine mysteries um you will see all the photos of this whale shark with this gigantic bite on its side, this scar. Um, and the reason for that is when you go on my website, um, which is either maxhawthorne.com or cronusrising.com, when people go on the website, they can look up a blog post I wrote about the whale shark. I think it's called um, the whale sh whale, um, white shark attacks on whale shark. How does the gentle giant survive or something like that is on there. And I examined how whale sharks were able to survive white shark attacks, which do happen on them fairly frequently. Okay. And in that, I showed a whale shark, I think it was a 20 footer, and it had um, awful bites from either a big, big tiger shark or a great white taken out of the same range, the, the caudal keel range, where this 40 foot whale shark was bitten, and the dorsal and stuff like that. And then you show 14 months later, you show that same bite, the same air one that the, the Galapagos shark shows, okay? And the difference is night and day. The the whale shark on my website, the bite is almost completely filled in. Hmm. The the brown or upper portion of it has been filled in. There's no edges anymore. It's like like you can barely tell okay. the so, shark was bitten. So so this bite was probably recent then that you observed that was observed. Well, it means that in fourteen months the whale shark's mm -hmm. healing factor was yep. incredible. And the bite is no longer recognizable really as a bite. 
Mm -hmm. But if you look at the Galapagos whale shark and the bite, you can still see individual tooth grooves in it. So it's chop, fresh. chop, chop, chop. Yeah, I would say the bite, based on the other whale shark, is probably six or eight months old, on a wow. guess. Okay. But the, the, so the compelling thing is, though, is that you can see these individual tooth notches on this thing. Now, this is a, a four foot wide bite. And going by the, um, well, there's two things. So the first thing is, is that the size of the attacker based on, and I, I went through all different scientific formulas in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, which are all explained to everybody in there. And I went through the different ranges and stuff. And I went with the most conservative one because it's the one that's got it, in my opinion, seemed the most accurate, made the most, most sense, et cetera. Because otherwise you come up with estimates. Oh, it was a 60 foot shark. It was this, this, and all this other stuff. But realistically, the most conservative formula suggested that the whale shark's attacker was about the same size as it. I think it came out to 42 feet or something like that. Okay. And it came up with the whale shark and it latched onto it and it tried to incapacitate it by crunching down and severing its means of propulsion, its caudal fin. Without the caudal fin, the shark can't swim, drowns, dives, easy prey, buffet, bring your friends, mm -hmm. etc. You know what I'm saying? Um, the attack failed. Okay. And that's because of this shark's caudal keel, which is in that blog post I mentioned, you know, whale sharks being attacked by great whites and stuff on the site. See, the caudal keel doesn't just, in my opinion, um, reinforce the shark's tail region, the peduncle, et cetera, when it's swimming so that it can actually swim better. Because whale sharks don't top that at more than like maybe three, four, five miles an hour. They're slow. Okay. Well, once again, cartilage skeleton slows you down at that size. But uh, it has so much skin and gristle and that caudal keel sticking out that I believe it has evolved as a crumple zone. Like when a car gets damaged, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it'll sacrifice part of itself to save the passengers. So the same thing applies here. Nature knows that a predator is going to go for that tail and try and take it out to incapacitate the whale shark. So it has gifted it with this in that case, I think Simon said that the tissue there would be either six or eight inches thick or more, just the skin, okay? So this predator comes up and takes a mouthful, but mostly what it gets is just taste, uh, this tasteful gristle and calluses almost or something like that, a mouthful of it. It doesn't destroy the muscles there. It doesn't incapacitate the whale shark and either it, you know, spat it out saying, okay, this tastes like garbage or the whale shark smacked it in the head with its own tail and then went on its way, okay? Um, but that's, you know, that, that suggests that that's what happened. And it's interesting if you think about it, when I say how slow sharks get at larger sizes, if you were a 40 foot predatory shark and you were attacking a whale shark and the whale shark smacked you in the head and then swam off, how come you couldn't pursue it again and finish it off? You know, you should be so much faster if you're like in the movies and the books where these sharks are jumping out of the sky and taking planes out of the air, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And stuff like that, you know, defying gravity. So it, you know, that, that says something else, but anyway, so the reason I don't think that this was a megalodon per se is that when you look at the individual tooth notches, which are in the photos in Monsters Marine Mysteries, they're very pointy, triangular. They look more like the teeth, the teeth marks left by a gigantic great white, or if there was some supposedly extinct fish still swimming around out there, the other option might be. Uh, you know, a living Trebutensis still roaming around or something. Hmm. You know, who's, to, who's to say? I mean, we definitely have some big sharks out there. You know, in the book, we should, we proved that great whites exceed 25 feet, and we've got numerous 
measure, you know, bite formulas. And we've got numerous photos of other whales that were attacked and huge. I, I even went on over the, um, the pygmy blue whale that was attacked in Perth Canyon, I think it was, um, and crunched the numbers on that bite. That was on the, one of the discovery episodes, I think they called it, but they were thinking they had a 35 foot great white in the kill zone, you know, that documentary. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at that also. And I came out with conservative numbers of a shark with 26 to 30 feet long, which is still a gigantic predatory shark. So are these white sharks that are for some reason mutating and getting incredibly big? Or is there something out there that doesn't know it's extinct yet? Who's to say? Wow. So so we are saying that it is a possibility that these that there's still megs out there. I don't think there's any megalodons out there. No, I think no. Just no, other other types of giant sharks. Yeah, because the bigger teeth, whites. Yeah, at that size, you, those upper maxillary teeth, the carved out gouges would be more rounded mm-hmm. as this, as it comes down. But they're not. They're like triangles. Okay, you could see it. You could see it in the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I just that's just my opinion. But I believe that we do have a very big macro predatory shark out there of some kind, but whether it's chubutensis or a gray white or something new, I don't know. I just don't think it's megalodon. And I think at that size of megalodon is reduced to, you know, eating carrion anyway. So. So what do you think happened to the meg? I think it just got too slow and got hunted. No, I I don't. I think that the problem is, is that, um, it's a parallel to like when pliosaurs became extinct around 90 million years ago. Pliosaurs were like the, uh, the sperm whales or killer whales of their day. They were the apex predators of the Jurassic and the Cretaceous until they went extinct and Mosasaurus came in and filled in the ecological niche. But uh, these things were like picture a, a crocodile a, like head, a crocodile body, probably smoother, with a short stubby tail and four big flippers but bigger than a bus. And that's what you're looking at when you have your larger species of pliosaurs. And then all of a sudden, ichthyosaurs, which I don't know if you know what an ichthyosaur is. Mm, I have no idea. Okay. So ichthyosaurs are these, it means fish lizards. And these are the extinct, extinct species, multiple, many species of uh, fish eating marine reptiles that look like dolphins, but they had a really long snout with lots of teeth in them, like needles. Okay. Some were a little bigger and scary than others, but they specialize in feeding on fish. And they ranged in size from, I don't know, four, five, six feet to some of them were 30 feet long or more. There were extinct species from the Triassic and stuff like that that got gigantic, the size of blue whales. But most of the ones were the size of a white shark or smaller. And they went extinct. And then right after they died out, the pliosaurs went extinct. So that strongly suggests there's a correlation and that these fish lizards, which were basically to pliosaurs, big fish, were the primary forage base for assorted species of pliosaur. That was their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And without that, they died off. So now put yourself in Megalodon's watery shoes and you've got a shark that the adults are specializing in eating carrion. They need whale carcasses to survive. Normally, there are innumerable whale carcasses out there you know when i my theory on the megalodon being a a primary scavenger which doesn't we're not saying that this shark only was a scavenger 
We're not saying that at all. We're saying that when it's younger, it was primarily a predator and scavenged as a opportunity presents itself. But as it got bigger and slower and bigger and slower, it evolved to convert more and more into a scavenger and less into a hunter. It doesn't mean that if there was a whale that was struggling to give birth, it couldn't swim in front of it. It's not going to make a kill and feed. Obviously, it will. Slow sea turtle, mm -hmm. la vista. You or I in the water, say goodnight, Gracie. Etc. <laughs> but you know, but a shark that size needs a tremendous amount of calories, and it's not able to chase down if it's swimming at eight or ten miles an hour, which is probably realistically its maximum at that size. It's not catching whales that swim at twenty-five and thirty miles an hour, which we know most cetaceans can. Say, bony skeleton, more powerful musculature, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason for that. So, it needs the carrion, and. You know, when my theory came out, it was like I seen like this website where these, you know, I don't these obsessed megalodon fans and stuff like that were so upset that their precious shark was being belittled, and it's not being belittled. <laughs> yeah, seriously, they were. I mean, they all the the ad hominem attacks on me, I'm like whatever, you know, get a life, grow a pair, whatever. Okay, but the truth is, is that this is not a personal thing. This is just the science, and that's what rankles people. I think. And so one of the things they were claiming was, oh, where are the, all these whale carcasses coming from? There weren't enough carcasses out there to feed the shark and blah, 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 blah. But the truth is that's a ridiculous thing to say. Okay. And I could say, oh, there used to be a million humpback whales and all this and crunched numbers of how many died here. I don't need to do that. What I need to point out is simple facts. And the fact is that the megalodon shark was eating whales. We know the smaller ones fed on cetaceans. We know the larger ones fed on cetaceans, okay? Live or dead depends. So now let's think about this. Let's go back to our visit about the great white and how many 20-footers there are out there, okay? We only know of a couple, right? Sure. Out of 10,000 sharks. Now let's say there's probably more than that, okay? There might be 120-plus white sharks in the world that are 20 feet or more, I mean, okay? So if there's 100 and there are 10,000 sharks, that's like, what, 1%? Mm -hmm. So every other white shark out there is smaller than that, which means that for every 20-plus footer, there's probably, God knows, a 1,000 that are 15 to 18 feet long, two, 3,000 that are 12 to 16 feet long. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the, the, they, they, the numbers, okay? Yeah. Males are smaller than females, et cetera. So the same thing would apply to megalodon. Your brood stock... Which, is, which means, like in fish terms, means your large adults that are producing, you know, brood stock, okay? Um, you're going to have, would be your, you know, your big males and your, that are probably, in that case, 35, 40, maybe 45 feet long, and extremes rarely. And then you've got your females that are 40 to top and out of maybe around 50 feet long. These are your big adults, okay? These are the ones that are reproducing, producing all the baby megalodons, et cetera, okay? And these sharks are... So let's just say for argument's sake that there's, let's say their numbers are like the great white, okay? That means that you've got a hundred big females out there, okay? And maybe a hundred big males out of 10,000 fish, you know, cosmopolitan-wise, the whole world, okay? So for every one of those 40, 50-foot females, there's probably a thousand sharks that are 20 to 30 feet long. Right. Would you agree with me? Yeah. I mean, that's logical, right? Yeah. Okay. And every one of those thousand 20 to 30 foot sharks is eating whales. 
Okay, the primary forage base was the Cetotheridae, the Cetotherium, these other smallish whales from that time period, which were 20, sometimes up to 30 feet long or something like that. I'm spitballing it. Okay, and that makes sense because a 20 to 30 foot shark, which is still able to swim at a good clip, is able to take down a 20 to 30 foot baleen whale. Okay, mm -hmm. so every time one of these sharks gets hungry, he's making a kill. He's killing one of these baleen whales and he's eating it. Okay, but he's only able to eat some of it. It's as big as him. So what does he leave behind? A carcass, a carcass, a carcass, a carcass. So every time you've got a thousand smaller sharks feeding, you know, 10, I'm scaling up, or, you know, broodstock adults, see? So it's a self-replicating thing. The younger sharks are literally supplying the food for the big breeding males and females. That's just how it is. It's efficient. It's a, yeah. It's a perfect pyramid, see? But the problem comes when you see these baleen whale mass extinctions. And this is what happened to Megalodon, in my humble opinion. You know, you have all these things like with plankton and all this stuff where these stocks just crash and all these baleen whales die. They starve to death. They've got nothing to eat. They're gone. What is the shark eating? You know, the younger sharks now have no baleen whales to hunt and kill. They're, they're making kills. They're killing what they can. What are they killing? Large fish, this and that, anything they can get their hands on, sirenids, et cetera. And so, but there's not much out there. So now the meals that they would normally leave behind for the big adults are gone. What are the adults eating? They nothing. got nothing to eat. And they all, just like the pliosaurs, they starve to death, literally. And that's it. Interesting. That, that's yeah, I mean, it's all, and it's logical. It all makes sense. You know, your food web, that pyramid just comes crashing down because you're so dependent. The big adults, those teeth are so specialized that they're this marvel of evolution to crack open ribs without losing all your teeth, without hmm. breaking your jaw, okay, et cetera. And all, it's perfect for doing that, but if you've got no rib cages to crack open, you're going to die. Slow, lingering death. How about the plesiosaur? Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a plesiosaur in Loch Ness or in other lakes? I very much doubt it. I mean, we're talking, first of all, a lot of the lakes like Loch Ness and stuff. I think Loch Ness has only been around since the last ice age. Was that 10 mm -hmm. or 12,000 years, something like that? Now, people could say things could access it from the sea because you get seals that pop in there and other things like that from time to time. But... No, I don't think there's any plesiosaurs in Loch Ness or, or hardly any other lakes out there. You know, it, it is an air breathe, like people say, it, it would become obvious. Um, there have been some intriguing sightings of plesiosaur-like creatures um, in the ocean. And if there was such an animal out there eking out of an existence and still hanging by a thread, um, that would be the place that it would be because you got so much more space, so much more food, etc. When the oceans are however many cubic million miles of space you know so but no not Loch Ness not uh, you know Lake Champlain or any of that stuff hmm. so do you have any theory on what people are seeing in the lakes um, I think that well if you, if you want to touch on Loch Ness in particular I'm honestly a proponent of the notion that it is um, 
most likely. And the, the sightings are few and far between. I know it's a tourist industry and all that. So you never know if sightings are real or made up, you know, this type of thing. I mean, it's big business. So I'm not faulting people, but we know there's been a lot of hoaxes there. Yeah. You know, I mean, like uh, there was a hoax of, you know, the surges photo, you know, little mm-hmm. submarine, toy submarine with a neck on it and stuff was a hoax. Uh, you know, I think it was a guy that took like feet from a taxidermy feet from like a walrus or something like that stomped around trying to make stuff. Um, there was like this, this uh, deer carcass floating around years back that supposedly had a tooth in it. And it turned out to be the, uh, a crab's foot, you know? Uh, so yeah. I mean, it's like, 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 you know, I mean, people can make mistakes and stuff like that, but it's laughable, you know, like I showed it, photos of it to my taxidermist, right? Because, oh my God, that's a, that's a crustaceans appendage. You know, like, like there was the people that own restaurants that cook crabs. They, they laugh when they saw it too. I, like, I cooked 10,000 of those. I know what that is, you know? So, I mean, there's a lot of hoaxes out there and stuff, but um, I believe that the most likely candidate um, for Loch Ness is the Wells catfish, Glanis. Um, and that's because it's number one, it's a very large catfish. I mean, they do, they're believed to grow over five meters in length and they've been caught like eight, nine feet, 10 feet sometimes, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they're survivors. I mean, the, these things are um, in Chernobyl in the, in the reservoir there. Oh yeah, yeah still, okay. still on TV. Yeah, and they're like 10 feet long. I mean, you know, it's like they can survive anywhere, you know, they, so it's, they were stocked in so much of Europe by people, you know, as food, you know, they wanted them to grow so they could catch them and eat them and stuff and for sport, et cetera. I think the biggest one landed in the UK is I think 150 pounds right now, maybe seven feet long or something like that. But, uh, you know, there's nothing to say that somebody didn't stock a few of these in lock nests. Uh, and they've been in for a long time. These are, these fish live a long time. Um, but, uh, and they've gotten quite sizable. They could weigh, four or five hundred pounds at this point and the thing about a welsh catfish it's very sinewy and eel-like serpentine you know and when it moves to the water it looks like an immense snake or something like that so it would be quite compelling and it would also make it hard to find them because during the day they like to sleep on, on like fallen timber on the bottom and stuff like that and chill out you know so you won't see them on sonar because they just blend in with the roots and branches and whatever else where they're chilling so i think uh i forget what the guy's name is but he's one of the uh famous loch ness researchers the guy with the beard the, the long white beard oh kind of, yeah yeah i know you're talking you know, about looks like a, like a thin santa claus uh-huh. thing going on there. i don't remember his name off the top of my head but he said that he felt the wells was a primary candidate for nessie sightings because number one you know they couldn't breed in there because the water temperature but that doesn't mean they can't survive once again chernobyl you know mm-hmm. but uh so but they, uh, you could have a population, a small population of them in there, or you can have transient ones that travel into the lock when you're getting all these fish that are spawning and stuff. You know, your trout, your other things that are in there, they come there to feed. And that's true. I've seen channel cats do that when you have like certain species of shiner spawning in by the thousands and stuff. And you'll see big channel cats just come in and start cruising through with their mouths open and stuff. They know there's a buffet and they're there for it. So I think it's the most realistic like that the, the Wells is a, a primary candidate. I can't remember the name of the woman, but there was one sighting where um, the person described this creature on the shore uh, as about six feet long and kind of serpentine and thrashing around. And she described it as having antenna. 
Now antenna sounds like long cat whiskers, see, which whales have very long whiskers in the front, you know, for feeling around, etc. And she said it flopped around it and it got back in the water. Whales are known to lunge out of the water to eat pigeons and stuff like that. So it's quite likely that she saw a whale's catfish that was thrashing around and squirmed back into the water and, you know, stayed its own life. And that one with the saint who talks about the, uh, you know, the, the, the creature uh, was attacking people and he drove it off or something like that, you know, rushed at some people. Wells also protect their nests. Jeremy Wade proved this in one of his documentaries. He showed how this woman, he went to investigate because this woman was saying how that something grabbed her and yanked her under. And he believed that it was Wells because they will do that. They will aggressively defend their nests, their eggs and stuff, and they will chase other fish away and they will bite people. They don't do damage because they don't really have, you know. Yeah. And if something big, seven feet long, even on grabs your leg and yanks on it, you're not sticking around to see what it is. You know what yeah. I mean? We all remember that opening scene in Jaws where the poor girl gets to that first hit, mm -hmm. you know? People were like, that's it for me. Goodbye. Don't you want to swim anymore? No, no, no I'm, I'm never swimming again, you know, et cetera. So all the evidence just seems to indicate it, it screams wells. You know, that's that's my personal opinion. Now, in other places like Champlain and stuff like that, I mean, you could have big sturgeons. I mean, who knows what? Uh, my usual bet is typically it's some sort of very large fish like sturgeon or something like that, you know, big cats. I mean, we have huge catfish in North America, too. You get flatheads, you get blues. They keep getting bigger and bigger. The, the world record keeps going up and weight, up and weight, up and weight. Lord knows where it's going to end. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. They just keep, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Anyway, even if people catch them, people let them go. Mm -hmm. Exactly, which is good. You want to maintain your brood stock so they can keep multiplying, create smaller cats that eventually become monsters. So I'm going to rewind back to the dolphin sex. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait. When I kissed this dolphin, okay, it was not a real kiss. I kissed him. No, on no, the chin. no, no. Not talking about okay. you. Not, 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 right, not talking. Sure. Not accusing anybody of any type of. Uh, uh, I guess it would be fishiality. His <laughs> breath was so fishy. Oh my god! I was like, oh, dude. It is bad. It's nasty. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> um, do you? Uh, the reason I kind of went back said that is because what do you think of the aquatic ape theory? I don't really, it's not anything I've ever really looked into, to be honest. Um, you know, I did watch that, that mermaids special, mm -hmm. you know, and I felt violated. You did? Honestly. Oh yeah. Because it, it was, it was deceptive. Because you don't like, you know, it's like the fine print, like, you know, it was like, oh, this is like, you know, what could happen or something like that. But up until that point, everything was like, seemed to be like real science. I mean, they showed like this, uh, like supposedly this cave drawing of these people interacting with like mermaids, what looked like mermaids, you know, and I'm believing it. Like, because it's presented as actual scientific evidence. And I'm like, tell my wife, look, look at this, look at this. And then they're showing this skull, supposedly, and all this stuff. But it wasn't until they showed the video from the kid's phone. And I was like, that's CGI, wait a minute, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I was very upset about it, as were a lot of other people, just like that whole, you know, another special that came out. But, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess anything is possible. But I once, I did see an aquatic ape one time in Connecticut but it's not yes but it's not what you're thinking it was uh probably a young 
Sasquatch, believe it or not. Really? No joke. It's it's in Monsters and Marine Mysteries. Yeah. So you, so you saw a young Sasquatch swimming in the ocean? No, no, in a lake. Oh, in a lake. Yeah, in a lake. There. So, yeah. so they it swim. Was, it was, oh, oh, yeah. This thing was uh, uh, an amazing swimmer, actually. Do you think Sasquatches are an actual type of cryptid, or do you think that they are some type of um, mystical, spiritual type of being? I believe that the creatures are real, first off. I believe the Patterson-Gimlin film is 100% real. I do, too. Yeah. I mean, you can see the, the muscle shock as the creature steps down. You know, certain things. You see the thigh muscles flex to absorb mm-hmm. its mass and everything. There's no denying it. And there's an, a, a longer version, I don't know if you've seen it, where it's walking from the back. And it's not yeah. the same one. They splice two different Bigfoot footages together. It's a male. And the musculature and the way it's moving, it's just, there's no, it, that was real, okay? But um, I believe that the uh, David Polides and his investigations are 100% right, that most of the Sasquatch that are being, all the ones they tested at DNA seems to indicate um, that the ancestor, and I think they said it went back 15,000 years, but it's been a while, so don't hold me to this. But, um, you know, man, in my events, years, you know, they say as you get older, the memory is the second thing to go. Really? Yeah. Mine keeps second getting thing. better. Yeah? Well, mm-hmm. God bless. The older I but, get, um, the more I remember. Really? Maybe I just want to forget. Or, or the more I forget, so I just think I remembered. It's, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> But um, Politi said they did DNA testing and they got um, Sasquatch DNA from a variety of sources. One, they set a trap for one. They put out pancakes with syrup and on the bottom of the plate, they put rough sandpaper. So when the creature was licking to get the rest of it, it scratched up its tongue and they got blood and epithelial cells. Uh, They got another one where they got um, blood and gum tissue where a Sasquatch ripped a whole drain spout off the side of somebody's house and bit it. Mm-hmm. I guess it was very angry. You don't want to run into that thing. Okay. A bunch of different examples. And when they did, they, they had to like probably sue this, this company to get them to, to give them the DNA results because when they found out what it was, they didn't want to cooperate, which is very interesting that no lab will want to give you information on a possible Sasquatch, like the DNA breakdown. Uh-huh. It's as if, as if they're not allowed, you know? So, Anyway, what the DNS, the DNA testing showed was that all the ones they tested, that it all went back to an ancestor 15,000 years ago, which was a human female that made it with something else, okay, and had offspring. They all go back to that coupling from 15,000 years ago. Now, let's be realistic, okay? I'm sure this mating was not voluntary, if you know what I'm saying, okay? Mm-hmm. But, uh, because to be, if you take a person and you, you know, were six feet tall, 180 pounds if we're in shape, 190 maybe if we work out, whatever, naturally, okay. These animals, the males are eight, eight and a half feet tall, 600 pounds or more, okay, superhuman strength and covered with hair. You know, where is that coming from, that addition to the DNA? which strongly suggests, in my opinion, that whatever mated with this woman was some sort of gigantic anthropoid-like creature. The DNA blended. Mm-hmm. Gigantopithecus, something else, you know, who knows what. 
okay extraterrestrial i don't know okay but there's an unknown factor unknown species is the other half of the dna puzzle okay now that may be the much larger sasquatch that are sometimes encountered that are 10 or feet tall or bigger and that have been seen fighting with and even killing this other species so it may be like wolves and dogs or something like that as they say okay but um you know that's my opinion i don't believe it's some sort of supernatural entity or alien that teleports or anything like that i mean you know the thing i saw was like a swimming animal that was you know collecting food for itself and stuff mm. so um yeah i think they're just highly adapted to the woods they're masters of camouflaging themselves and stealth, and they have incredible strength and agility for an animal that or an anthropoid that size, and they're not stupid. So, um, with the camouflaging of these creatures, I recently was watching something, and a scientist has suggested that Sasquatch might be able to uh, manipulate the hair on his body. So it reflects light in a way to render it invisible. I guess, I mean, at 15,000 years of evolution, I guess that's possible. I mean, uh, I think they said, like, um, gosh, uh, Darwin said, like, it would take only 10,000 years to create a new species, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe it, there is some sort of adaptive mechanism that can let the hair kind of change in terms of like reflectiveness how light hits it like you said it maybe it could, it's fair can change color a little bit mm -hmm. or something almost like a chameleon i mean i'm not aware of any mammals that do that people have reported sasquatch that have different colors on them you know like the hair was more like like reddish on the shoulders and darker on the chest and the back and things like that which makes sense you know depending on the animal it's like people have different you know sometimes body hair is a different color than the hair on your head so, yeah. um, but you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know if they have like, uh, you know, like light refracting technology, like, you know, the submarines in my novels, but, uh, you know, I think they're, uh, they're, they're very good at what they do. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, and, and any animal can blend into trees and stuff. I mean, I have the woods right out behind my house and when a deer moves in there in 10 feet, he's gone and he's not the same color as those leaves by far. So. so then why haven't we found the remains of one yet? Well, one, they probably have, and they've been confiscated. Who so, would do that? So you think the government knows about the squatches? I would bet yes, definitely. I mean, there's been so many reports. People said that they, they were worked for them, and they were now dying. They wanted to come clean because they were, had some terminal illness and stuff like that. People claimed to have been to labs and all this stuff and seen experiments being done. And, you know, the Mount St. Helens eruption where they said that they had a bunch of all these dead animals collected, and they had a pile of this and that, beer, you know, bear and deer and cougar, and they had a pile of Sasquatch, and then Chopper comes with nets, and they take all the remains, and they fly away with it, etc. But, uh, I would, I, it would not surprise me. David Politi's had such a hard time getting DNA testing done. It was like, you know, the person got, like, he, he said, I, I listened to his thing. He said, um, when we, uh, we gave the guy, we didn't say what it was. We just said, uh, you know, um, we have some human DNA, I think he said, and we're going to, you know, we just want to get a breakdown on it or whatever. And then the guy calls him up all excited. 
He goes, my God, where did you get this? He goes, this is incredible. This, this sample, he goes one half of it, you know, he's telling them the details and stuff like that. And, and he finally tells them it's from a suspected Sasquatch. The guy gets vicious, nasty, won't cooperate, you know, like furious, like he's been duped, all this other stuff. Why? You know, it's almost as left like, like you have like some sort of like leash and you're not allowed to off of it, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, it, it logically, from a governmental perspective, I would imagine that they would not want people to know that these animals, these creatures are out there. And Why? If it's just another um, hominid or whatever, what's the difference? What's the big deal? Why would they want to hide it? Well, let's think about it logically, you know, historically speaking. The first thing is the aspects of religion. You know, Adam, Eve, all this other stuff, we're the center of the universe, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Now you've got this huge, powerful, intelligent species of humanoid, whatever you want to call it, wandering around out there, kind of throws everybody's religion in the toilet, if you think about it. So you've got that aspect of it. And remember, religion is related to money also. It is big business after all, mm -hmm. right? So there's a financial aspect of it as well that you know people don't want. I mean, think about it. If you just find out now that there's 10,000 of these things living in forests in this country in Canada or other parts of the world, you know, this is, a uh, you know, like, and they're human or part human at least, you know, they have families, uh, et cetera then what does that mean? How does that apply to Catholicism and every other religion out there? You know, all of a sudden, and they're older than we are, our civilizations. Right. So that's an issue. And then there's the other issue is that, like David Politi's had like, his, with his missing 411 books and stuff, is that, God, I feel like I'm promoting this guy, and I'm not on here to do that or anything like that. Okay. Remember, you guys reached out to me. But um is that I read some of his 411 books and they detail hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidents in national parks where people just disappear. You know, the remains are never found or they find like chewed up little chunks of bone here and there mm -hmm. and stuff like this, you know, et cetera. And some of the disappearances are astonishing. Like a bunch of hunters are walking single file through the woods, walking and talking, walking and talking. You know, they're a few meters apart and all of a sudden the guy in the back is gone. They ask him something, and he's not there anymore. Nothing. Guy's carrying a rifle. He's an experienced woodsman and a hunter, grown man, and he's just gone. No evidence, no weapon, nothing. It's like, what can grab a 200-pound guy with a 30-odd six, stop him from making a sound, and just whisk him away like nothing? Do you think they're eating people? I believe that some of them are cannibalistic, yes. So... Think about it now. Okay. I heard humans taste gamey. I don't know. I mean, I have one newspaper article that said that these this 10-foot Sasquatch came into a camp, killed two teenagers, threw them over his shoulder, and left. And the blood was on the trees, like they said, like 12 or 15 feet up, so they were definitely dead. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's, these things happen. I mean, all people are not good. All Sasquatch are not good, you know? And people eat monkeys, don't they? Terrible. Yes, and chimpanzees actively hunt and eat smaller primates and have been documented taking human infants and eating them. Yeah. Okay, what would stop? This is the biggest, most powerful primate on the planet. You know, we're like 
like a Big Mac and a bright red, you know, sweater walk through the woods, you know, listen to our iPod. I mean, like it doesn't, you're, we're manatees. Okay. You know, seriously, I mean, like, like top of the food chain. Okay. Whatever. You know, technology. Yes. But without that. So my point is, is that if that's true, if they are, some of them are like meteors, I mean, we know they eat deer and everything else like that. Okay. So you've got all these disappearances, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. If the government knew that these creatures are out there and word gets out, there's going to be a lot of upset people and a lot of lawsuits, you know, I mean, et cetera. So, I mean, this whole thing is just something that I would imagine, this is just my opinion, you know, that, you know, people like the powers of be would not want this information coming out. That makes sense. Just some, you know, like, like, I mean, the government has, you know, admitted to like mind control stuff and things like that. Yeah, the UFO stuff, uh, stuff is UFO stuff starting to creep out now. Some of it, you know, they yeah, they tell they tell you a little bit, <laughs> right? Yeah, just enough to get you to think what you're supposed to think. But so. um, yeah, but I mean, you know, that, that's it's the thing's definitely real. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And, and I read so many reports of people that said they were hired to that there were problems Sasquatch. One guy was saying how uh, he was like a you know working as a mercenary, ex-military, he was a merc. And him and some of his people were hired to go in and wipe out a family of them because they were problem Sasquatch. They were eating people. Hikers kept disappearing in the area. They knew they were taking them. They were killing and eating people. So they sent them in to, to exterminate them. And they did. Wow. And I think he said they used helicopters to flush them out. There was a female and a, and a, and a young one that they, they gunned down. And uh, then the and the big male had escaped, and he ran into the ambush that was waiting for him on the ground. And he said he wouldn't discuss what happened there. So I don't know if he managed to kill a few people before they machine gunned them to death or what. I mean, I'm assuming he's not making all this up. But there's so many people telling all this stuff out there, you know. So hmm. you, you gotta know, you gotta wonder. That is interesting, you know. And I don't even know what to think of that, you know, like. The idea of Sasquatches eating people. I'm like, I'm even wondering, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know? Because in a way, you know, I think it's a bad thing maybe for like the average human that's walking around the woods. But in a way, it's also kind of humbling to um, have that realization that we are not the apex predator on this planet. Yes. And apparently they know what guns are as well. And that's the thing. Like, you know, as they say, respect comes at the end of a rifle. So that's why wolves stopped attacking people in this country because so many wolves were shot, et cetera. They learned to fear people. Now, wolves that have been re-released back into the wild and stuff. There was an incident a few years back where that jogger was killed by a pack of wolves. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that, no. Yeah, you, you should Google it. They, they, she fought for her life for a long time. They eventually they you know killed and ate, ate her, at least part of her. Mm. Um, and these wolves... Apparently, some of them no longer have fear of people. See, so yeah. it's interesting, you know. Kind of just puts the food chain back into perspective. Like I know, like where I live, like one of the big things that people are always afraid of is coyotes taking off the children and eating them. Yeah, and they're opportunistic, and that would definitely be a problem, especially like a toddler, a baby, God forbid, something like that. You know. My dad had issues in Arizona with coyotes would follow him around when he would go out for walks because he was old. He was like 80 
and uh, you know they can sense age and infirmity, and they, they know you're a potential meal. You know, he didn't get, he didn't get eaten, did he? No, no, he was carrying around his 22 Magnum revolver after that, you know, after the first time and stuff, just in case. <laughs> he said one of them, though, was showing up in the backyard. They kept going in the backyard. I don't know why. And my sister was staying with him at the time. And he would tell her, hey, your boyfriend's back again. <laughs> tell him I said not to come around. <laughs> uh, he would get all upset. And he was just looking for dinner. Yeah, or something. I don't know. You don't want to give Coyote a handout. That's no. for sure. Wow. Um, so in the ocean, what do you think would be the most spectacular possibility to be discovered? Mm. Would it be some type of dinosaur? Would it be well, the Meg? Could it be some kind of super intelligent type of aquatic creature that we haven't found yet i think that any giant and or quote extinct marine fauna megafauna is going to send shockwaves to the scientific community in the world at large if it's proven you know i mean do i think a uh i mean weigh it in your head okay if somebody uh i don't know if some vessel, a trawler, you know, nailed a squid 150 feet long and they got the specimen or a fisherman or a whaler, let's say, shoots a 40 foot shark thinking it's a whale. And then they've got this carcass, for example. You see how that's the novelist of me creating these little scenes and stuff. But anyway, um, the, uh, you know, either of those would have an incredible impact. Um, I mean, the most spectacular one I could think of off the top of my head, short of a UFO the size of a small city surfacing on the bottom of the oceans mm-hmm. or something, which has been in movies, obviously, um, might be the, uh, I interviewed a gentleman discussing uh, a creature that we call the Carnival Cruise Monster, which seems to have been a motion sore over 100 feet long service next to his cruise ship that he was working on and followed the ship for a little while studying it and then it veered off oh wow you know so i mean i think a marine reptile the size of a blue whale a carnivorous marine reptile which is the largest predator now ever something that size that would probably be something incredible if it was proven to be true you know so hmm um, one last question. Do you mm-hmm. think that humans evolved from sea creatures? And is that why we have this little webbing between our fingers? Well, I think all life came from the sea. Mm-hmm. All terrestrial life. And look at whales. They started off on the land and went back to the sea. But, I mean, the, the theory is obviously that you went through these stages. And then the first creatures that came on land, your amphibians and your reptiles and, and your you know, your dinosaurs, your warm-blooded ones, your non-avian dinosaurs, your avian dinosaurs, et cetera, and mammals along the way. So, I mean, I would guess that, but at the same time, I mean, the webbing, like, usually there's very little of it. So, I yeah. mean, is, is it webbing or is it just any animal when you spread its fingers? I mean, my cat has webbing between his paws. Mm-hmm. You 
I'm sure a dog does also. I don't have a dog handy to check it, but you know, I would bet on it. So, I mean, we do sometimes have phenomena where people actually have some partial webbing between their fingers, some sort of throwback gene, et cetera. That almost sounds like an amphibian, of course, right. if you think about it. But uh, I don't think all life came from the ocean, it appears. You know, hmm. we're just not in it anymore. But I, we do like it. I guess that's why I was born with a tail. There you go. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They took uh-huh. it off when I was a baby. Are you serious? No, I'm just messing with you. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I have three nipples. I just don't go around showing it. You do? Yes, I do. Really? Yeah, I swear to God. Do you have a picture that I can put up with the I podcast? do not. I will not. No. That's for private viewing only. Hello. I'm very, I'm like Drax the Destroyer. I have sensitive nipples, okay? But anyway. Actually, I have one more question. Bring it. What's the story behind this gym rat book? Um, oh, Memoirs of a Gym Rat? Yeah, it almost looks pornographic. No, it's not pornographic at all. It has, I some, mean, there is, has, has some muscle guy, some pretty girl. Well, back in when I, uh, before I went into writing, and after I gave up, originally I was an animator, my college degree, film and animation. And I gave that up to become a veterinarian and did worked with a vet as his assistant, did surgery, all this stuff. Hated it, don't like killing animals. Wanted to do something positive, became a personal trainer. And along the way, I invented this great fitness product called the Thymate, which was a product I patented. I was on QVC with it once. Wow, you're the guy who invented that. Yes, the idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm the worst businessman in the world, and I could not make a go of it because I – didn't have like, you know, backing and the right people and whatever and stuff like that. But anyway, and so while I was working on this product for years and years and years, I was working in the fitness industry, you know, to pay the bills and everything else. And as I was in the industry, I started seeing, you know, just terrible things. I mean, just awful stuff. People being taken advantage of, debauchery. I mean, the stuff that was like, like, it was just like an unending saga. I work with people and you'd be like, like the people that these, especially these big health club chains, okay? And it, w- when I left the industry, I, I had, for years, I had been saving up this the dirt, okay? Mm-hmm. And every time something horrible would happen in one of the clubs I was running and stuff like that, I would write a little note about it, and I'd put it in my pocket, would have posted or something like that. And every day I'd come home and throw two or three things in a shoebox. And soon I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds thousands maybe of incidents of which I eventually decided to do it as sort of like a what not to or a cautionary tale if you're going to join a health club so people know what goes on in many places behind the scenes and so they'd be prepared to deal with it and everything from cleanliness issues to locker robberies to steroid sales to to violence to you know catching diseases to and the biggest threat for most people is the shady salespeople and management in a lot of clubs Hmm. and so I exposed everything all the dirt is in there. All the shady sales tactics, the things they, the lies they tell to people, you name it. It's all in there, you know? And uh, it wasn't like the, the book did not set the world on fire. I got a lot of opposition because as it turns out, oh yeah, because you see, I exposed stuff in there that a lot of people did not want coming out. See, maybe things that they were guilty of, who knows what. You'll know if you read the book or if you read the book, it's all in there. But, um, you know, like there's just some, a lot of nasty things that go on in gyms. I mean, Many times, not more than more than a few, I would open up a closet and I catch 
a personal trainer and they're getting on with one of his clients. That's what I was going to say. I always heard that gyms were a place for sex hookups. Oh, they, they are. Everybody, you'd be surprised. A lot of places, people just go in there looking for action. They want to get in shape for their relationship or to find a relationship or to find somebody. And a lot of the guys I and mean, girls can be bad too. They're just walking around looking like, mm, ooh, fresh meat. Oh, hey. My first job, the woman was looking at me and she's, she has me like spin around so she can check me out. I, 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 you know, like, like, hello. <laughs> and, and the other guy's like, are you going to check his teeth too? She goes, oh, you're right. Let me check. I'm like, get the hell off me. You know, stop it. <laughs> I mean, like, it was, and, and this other manager, you know, I, I don't want to tell you something. It's, it's a lot of it's in the book and stuff, but I mean, like the things like it, it just when you think you hit rock bottom with how bad things can be, it, there's more, you know? I mean, like you're talking to a sales guy. So what'd you do before this? Oh, I sold used cars. Great. Yeah, you're gonna do great here. You know? I mean, that's like the worst of the worst, right? You know, not lying to people. Oh, what were you doing before this? Oh, I just finished doing a nickel. A nickel? Yeah, a nickel. I'm like thinking, the guy just smoked a nickel bag of pot. What's he telling me? And he goes, You know, five. I'm like, five, what he goes, five years. I'm like, wait, you were in jail? And he's like, Yeah. I said, for what? You're selling crack. I'm like, great. Who's doing the freaking hiring here? Where are the background checks? You know, and this is why these places go through people like Grant took Richmond. I mean, they just every week there's somebody new, somebody new, somebody new, because they keep doing horrible things and taking advantage of people and lying and getting fired. Mm. You know, the turnover rates were astonishing. I mean, like, I've got to tell you one thing. Okay. Now, I'm no saint. Okay. If you read the book, you'll see that there's a lot of stuff in there that things that I did also abusing my power and position and stuff like that but i was like nice compared to a lot of these people and uh, like for an example um a lot of these gyms and i i just warned a friend of mine recently about this who was joining a gym when you go in there one of the little tricks that they do is they try to not give you a copy of your contract they don't tell you what the cancellation policy is and they don't give you a copy of your contract or tell you how to cancel if you want to. Okay. And that's because they want you to not know and they want to make it difficult for you. Okay. And they'll tell you lies like, oh, um, oh, we don't have that. Or, uh, oh, we can't give out a copy because it, our system's numbered. And if we were to give you this copy, it would throw off the things in the computer. Like, what? Like the pink copy is supposed to be for the customer, you know, like the carbon copy and stuff like mm -hmm. that, et cetera, you know, but they don't want you to have that. They don't want you to know, like a lot of places will lie. Uh, one big popular chain, which I believe is out of business now, was famous for this being investigated where they would lie. Oh, there's no contract. You can cancel whatever you want. And they're, they're signing a three-year contract and they don't give you a copy of your contract and you don't know about it. See? So you don't know you're roped in. And then they make you come back like five days later. You only have three business days to cancel. And now you're stuck <laughs> with a three-year contract. And they will haunt you and threaten you, their, their collection agency, until the day you die to try and get your money. <laughs> Scum of the earth. It sounds, okay? sounds like what I used to do when I worked at the cable company. Great. That's even better. <laughs> so wait. So this is the one part. This is one of my proudest moments working in that industry. And, you know, after becoming a best-selling author, it was so much better, honestly. You don't have to, like, listen. I mean, I couldn't deal with these corporate slime that I was forced to answer to. I mean, I had emails I've saved from these idiots. They would say stuff like, like, uh, if you were doing sales for them, 
you know, to tell the manager, make sure that every one of your sales reps when they come in has a dragon with them when they walk in the door. And that means when you got off the train, you were supposed to grab some poor bastard off the street and physically drag him into the gym to make him join. He had no interest in joining. You're just grabbing him and practically strong arming him into the gym to make him join. Okay. <laughs> and then they'd be like, everybody's on the phone today. No lunch breaks, no bathroom breaks. You're legally allowed your lunch break. Hello. I say, if you see a sales rep that's not on the phone, get the duct tape. This is how they are. Okay. They are scum. And if any of you cockroaches out there listening to this, you know who you are. Okay. But anyway, so one of the things that was interesting, and a feather in my cap is, you see, they sent out reporters to all the big chains in New York City. Okay. I'm not going to mention any names or anything like that of the chains, et cetera. Okay. But they went to all these locations and they said, we investigated, you know, we went to six of these clubs and eight of these clubs and four of these clubs and this, 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 this. Okay. Every one of them, they said, did not offer a copy of the contract, not explain billing, did not explain the cancellation policies or your rights for cancel or anything like that. The only exception was one club from Blank Chain in Brooklyn, which is where I worked, okay, where the representative explained everything in full detail, explained the cancellation policies, everything that went with it, billing in full detail, and gave a copy of the contract. And the person that did that was me. <laughs> and that's the truth. Okay. And that's why I was so great at my job because you see the people that came in there, they knew I was not a company man. Okay. They knew I was on their side, not the company side. Okay. And they knew they could trust me and they love me. And that's why I was successful because I always had customers beating down my door because they knew I would give them the straight 411 and I would never screw anybody. And that was that. Wow. And it was great because I, I, I could edit my first novel while I was at work. You know, <laughs> I'd be sitting there in my office with a word file, chapter seven. Da, da, da. Then I see my boss get up in her office. I was like, oh, save, close, pretend I'm working. What so, are you doing? Oh, just making phone calls. You know. Why don't you have a Brooklyn accent? Well, I didn't grow up originally in Brooklyn. But if you want, I can do it. I mean, honestly, it's not a problem, you know. I could talk like these guys all day. Forget about it. Hey, yo, you're talking to me? The first thing is, I remember one time I was talking to this wise guy, literally a wise guy in Brooklyn, okay, about renewing his membership. Okay, I was in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, or something like that. You know, and I said, yeah, I said, it's a great deal. I said, you should grab it. If I was you, he goes, if you were me. I said, yeah, if I was you, if you were me, I'm like, is there somebody else here? Who am I talking to? <laughs> you know, if you were me. Yeah, if I, well, I don't want to be you, but if I was, God forbid, okay, I mean, like, you know, like the characters, my God, oh, it was so difficult. When I, when I wrote Cronus Rising, my first novel, okay, I had such a tough time because I absorb what's around me and I had been in Brooklyn for so long. I had lost two thirds of my vocabulary. I know I'm going to get some pistol people now hearing this stuff but it was true I, I just i lost my vocabulary like 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 my oh my god it was such i was like i had to re-educate myself you know mm -hmm. so so when you were in philadelphia mm. did you ever eat a pat's oh yeah steakhouse okay. uh -huh. yeah 
of course. Oh, so good. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. But I was in great shape then because, you know, working out like 16 days a week, you know. Oh, you're still working out in Philly. Yeah. Oh, I, I used to work out there a lot. This place in Center City. That was where I saw the, the, the naked lady. Oh, my God. What a day that was. You saw a naked lady in Center City? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was going to college there, the University of the Arts, and I had an apartment like in Center City. And I was, uh, I would go to this gym. It was on Chestnut Street. And I think it was a Sunday morning, like early fall, cool, but not cold, you know, sun out. And you're walking on Chestnut Street. And if you know that area, it's a business mm-hmm. district. So on a Sunday morning at like nine o'clock in the morning or 830 in the morning, there's like nobody around. I mean, it's very few people. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm a young, like 21 year old guy strutting down the street, looking forward to working out, whatever stuff. And all of a sudden I realized coming toward me at the end of the block is this tall, very pretty blonde who is buck naked. That's awesome. All she's wearing is a pair of John Lennon glasses, round glasses, not shades, round glasses. And that's it. Okay. About five, eight, five, nine, gorgeous, great shape, everything. Like that. I mean, obviously I was, she was completely naked. I could tell everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and she's walking along and she must've been high on something because she's walking and she has her arms straight at her sides with her hands like, like straight, like the fingers, like wrist mm-hmm. bent, fingers straight like that. And she's just walking around looking at the buildings and stuff like real slowly, like she's just like this and stuff. And, and she's just walking along and people are walking past her, this and this and all this stuff. And, you know, nobody's batting an eye. And I'm like, there's a naked blonde on Chestnut Street. Why is nobody reacting? And then I'm getting closer and closer to it. I'm like, oh my God, I have to walk past this woman. And now I start getting red. I'm embarrassed. I'm a young guy. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not the one who's naked on Chestnut Street. Why am I embarrassed? You know? <laughs> so then I'm like, I get to her up to her and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> like, like Joey Tribbiani or something. <laughs> and she gave me this look like, I will eat your liver. Like, I was like, oof, like that. So, like, she, I let her walk, I didn't let her walk past, she walked past me. I, I, I turned and looked back, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, like this. And I run up, the gym was right there, and I told them, everybody to the windows. <laughs> there was, like, 50 guys hanging out there, and they're like, oh, my God, he's right, look, and stuff. But the craziest part of all that was at the end of the block where she was headed, there was a paddy wagon, as they call it in Philadelphia, okay, cops, mm-hmm. you know, band or whatever, so like that, with three or four cops standing there drinking their coffee and eating their morning donuts. And she's walking right to them. They must have been like, Joe, pinch me. I'm dreaming. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like, wow. Like, you know, like, you know, I don't know what happened. Don't want to know, et cetera. All I know is beautiful blonde, naked on Chestnut Street. Max was embarrassed. Wow. You know, there used to be a place, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I know. 56. 56. Okay. So there was places in New York City that I used to go to where the uh, prostitutes would walk around topless. And and one of them, like, was, like, near this diner. And we would go to this diner, like, late at night and sit by the window and just look at the topless prostitutes. Yeah. Well, you know, those, I, are, I, those I, are the good old days. Yeah, you know, I think the blonde was probably a little cleaner, you know. <sighs> I don't know what she was on, but she was she had to be on something, you know. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, it was it was well, not cold, but it was a little cool to be buck naked on Chestnut Street. 
no shoes, no nothing. You know. So are you I'm saying like, you've never walked down the street naked? Not. It's been a while. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to cut down. You know, ever since my last the last incident, you know. I don't want to do like, you know, I don't want to break into like, you know, superstardom like by like by Kim Kardashian style and like with a, you know, a tape or something like that. So, you know, no, I'm trying to hold <laughs> off on that. So, yeah, I can't pull that off where I live now. Mm. Well, thank you very much for being on today. Sure. It was my pleasure. Um, before we wrap this up, though, where can my listeners find you? Uh, I'm not giving out my address, if that's what you mean. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, we need that address. Right. So I can send all those naked women. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Man, I wonder if that girl, she will hear this and she'd be like, oh, my God, that was me. How dare you? I feel violated. (laughs) It happens Um, all the time. It's all right. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, on Facebook, people can look me up under facebook.com slash Max Hawthorne author. Same thing on Instagram. I have no idea what my Twitter is nowadays, but I'm sure it's not hard. Um, I do have a, a fan page on uh, Facebook called the uh, Max Hawthorne's Cronus Rising Novel Series, or people can go to my official website, which is either maxhawthorne.com or cronusrising.com. And uh, it's it's a it's a cool site to visit. There's a uh, first there's a free book section where you could do free downloads from a lot of stuff for yourself to check out. There's also a paleo gallery if you're into like prehistoric life. There's like I feature artists, like hundreds of them for all different types of art, usually marine stuff. So if you're into marine predators and things like that, that's a nice thing to pop into. All free, obviously, and stuff. But uh, yeah, so everybody's welcome. Love to meet them. Awesome. I will post those links in the notes to this episode, um, or at least some of them, at least once to your website and to your books. Um, some of my listeners can check you out and check out your website and buy some of your books. Hey, listen, the, the more the merrier, you know. My kid's like driving me into the poorhouse. Wow. <laughs> she is. The, the cats. Oh, my God. We have cats that eat like, you know, you buy expensive food for and they never eat it. And it just gets thrown out, thrown out. I'm going broke feeding cats. <laughs> Seriously. Well, what the heck? I got this dog that poops about eight times a day. Oh, that's a lot of walking. It's a lot of poo in the backyard, that's for sure. Oh, my God. Minefields, huh? Yeah, everywhere. Oh, jeez. Which means I have to go pick up poop. I have a litter robot, so I don't do that. You know, there are advantages to the cats. But thank you so, so much. I hope you have an awesome day, and I hope your listeners all stay safe. Thank you. Hang on one second, and I was going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, 
everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.